Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You learn things from real people that you don't get in professional training. And this is kind of the wisdom of lived experience experts that I wanted to capture. I interviewed 130 people, Alan, from all across America. Almost every single one of them said, the idea that my experience could help another person, and that I'm going to be in a book as a teacher, that my little story has meaning, is the most amazing thing to me. That you consider me a kind of expert, Ken, And I'm like, you are a kind of expert. You've lived with this phenomenon in your life for years, and you've learned something about it. That's Ken Duckworth, Chief Medical Officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. He's written a terrific book called You Are Not Alone. It's a guide for those with mental health problems, and it's unique in that along with advice from experts, it also tells of the lessons to be learned from people and families who are themselves struggling to live with mental illness. This is great to be talking with you because you deal effectively with a really important problem. Is the figure still correct that one in five people have mental issues? Yeah, mental health conditions, about one in five. But COVID saw a spike in anxiety and depression. Mm. And so if you looked at the CDC data for six months into the pandemic, we were running two and five. We're probably somewhere between one and five and two and five now. But once you add family members, friends, and coworkers, it's an uncommon person who doesn't know someone, Alan. Yeah, I would imagine that that we're in a way all in the same boat. And yet the title of your book really works against that. You are not alone. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who is in that group of people who has somebody in the family or a good friend, or themselves, who's not really well mentally. People delay seeking help, Alan, and I think in part that's because of shame and isolation. And so I think the title was very intentional. So I meet people who said, well, I've had symptoms for five years. It took me a decade to get myself to, you know, go to get some support for this. And I think, you know, you'd have to think that shame and isolation are principal drivers of that. And I saw that in my own family. And, uh, you know, that's the reason I became a psychiatrist is I had a very loving dad who was periodically very ill and nobody would talk about it. Inside the home, in church, in school, no matter where you looked, we were isolated. Now, this is very interesting because I have the same background. Mm. In your case, it was your father. Yes. In my case, it was my mother. Really? Who was schizophrenic and paranoid Mm. and severely so. And the idea that it wasn't talked about then was we didn't even talk about it 
within the family. Yes, same problem with me. It was a trio, my father, my mother, and me, and my father and I never discussed it. Mm. Now, did you have that? Did Did it penetrate that deeply into your family? It became so bad, Alan, I decided to become a psychiatrist to make sense of it. It was the origination of the whole experience was what happened to him, and then we couldn't talk about it. So, Alan, in your family... I mean, how did you make sense of it, and how did you direct all that? Did any of your creativity come from that kind of unexpressed pain? I've thought about it a lot, as you can imagine. I imagine, yes. And I do think that one of the benefits I got from it was that I became very observant. Mm. I had to be able to make it see, I had to be able to see the difference between what was actual reality Mm. And what was my mother's reality? Yes. Because every crack in the wall contained a camera that was spying on us. Mm. And uh, and I would be I would be accused of all kinds of things like wanting to murder her and that kind of thing. But how about you? How did you how did you navigate? You know, uh, this hurricane would visit our family and he would go to the hospital, state hospital, which has since been closed, of course, which adds to the complexity for modern day families. And then he'd come out four months later, or I'd go see him. And I felt so alone. So when I went to visit him, I was at the University of Michigan, the local school down the street. um, And I went to visit him at the state hospital from the University of Michigan, and he was drooling and on a lot of meds. And I thought to myself in that parking lot, I am the most alone person on this earth. There is no one I can talk to about this. He is such a wonderful person. I love him so dearly. He is so sick, and there's just no way. And I sat in my VW micro, you know, little VW bug that I bought for a hundred bucks, right? And I'm sitting in that car, and I put my head on the steering wheel, and I'm like, I think this is just, you know, the worst possible experience. Little did I know, at the same time, this is 1979. I was junior at the University of Michigan. The National Alliance on Mental Illness was forming a couple hundred miles away. It was a group of people who had come to the same conclusion. We have to be able to talk about it. We can't be blaming parents for things that are largely biological. We should do something about the fact that society keeps abandoning us in terms of, you know, care systems, housing, respect. So um, that I become their chief medical officer, you know, years and years later is a perfect connection for me because I know what it's like to feel alone. That ability to have the sense of we Hmm. really seems important if you're in a family where someone you love is beset with mental illness. Yes. That it's that it's not a question of why are you this way? Why? Are you, what have you? What are you doing? What? Mm. What happened to you? What happened to us? Mm. How is this affecting us? And what can we do about it? I, it reminds me of a phrase you use in the book called motivational interviewing. Yes. Hey, what, what? Tell me more about that. So motivational interviewing. One of the things I did is I also uh, connected with the best researchers in America to answer all the common questions that I get. Do I really have to take these meds forever? How do you talk to somebody who says they wish they were dead? You know, these are the questions people ask me. And I interviewed um, Bill Miller, who invented motivational interviewing. Bill Miller taught me, there's been more than 200 randomized controlled trials, that people are like a committee. And if you push on one side of the committee, the other side will react. So if you said, Alan, you said, 
Ken, you're depressed and you need help. My answer would be, no, I don't, and I will not get help, right? So you push on one side of the committee or boat, and the boat tries to right itself. He calls this the writing reflex. The art of motivational interviewing is to listen to me and hear that I'm struggling with sleep or struggling with the sense that I've lost joy. I don't watch the NCAAs anymore. Like nothing's any fun for me. And he says, really listen to the person and work with them through your loving connection to help them see the meaning or value of finding help. So the easiest thing to do is to tell somebody what is wrong with them and what they need. He says, that really doesn't work for most of us. I have seen it work occasionally. You know, certain trusting people are like, oh, you think so? Maybe I will go get help. But motivational interviewing is for the 90% of people who are like, you know, I don't think so. So you push on the side of the boat and they're like, yeah, you know, we're going to rock this way and I'm going to push you away. So these are like techniques to communicate with people you love. And these are not easy things to learn. But I think it's really valuable to have these techniques so you can deepen the quality of your relationships with people. It sounds a little bit to me like what you discovered when you went through this really bad experience when your brother died. So my brother uh, was a wonderful guy, 10 years older than me. We were best friends. And my sister had multiple cancers and had died 12 years prior. And I had spent a lot of time loving and supporting her. My brother then developed multiple myeloma, uh, kidney cancer, and I moved to Philadelphia and looked after him and loved him. And uh, we had a lot of beautiful moments. But when he died, I had lost both my siblings, and I was the youngest in the family. So, you know, the, the idea of, you know, becoming the patriarch of a family, uh, when you were always the baby, I think I couldn't really process the loss of all that. And I had trouble getting out of bed. So Alan, I was, you know, I had these uh, work calls and I would join the work calls. I would introduce myself. Then I'd go on mute and stare off into space. Like literally, I was a non-functional person. Mm. And at some point I went to see my friends and they're like, you look like hell. You should probably get evaluated for medications. So this is the psychiatrist who needs his friends to encourage him to get help, Mm. which just speaks to the complexity of it. I kind of couldn't see it. Like, of course I'm supposed to be sad. My brother's gone. My sister's gone. Like, it's a lot of loss to process. But this was a grief that wasn't going away. And, you know, I just really was struggling. And then, of course, I doubled down on psychotherapy. I took an antidepressant. And I felt a little lighter. And um, I still have a lot of heartache about the fact that I've lost both my siblings. I love them very much. But, you know, I had a depressive episode. And so now I have entered this club of people with mental health conditions. So I'm a family member. I'm a psychiatrist. Like that was my first two identities. And then I had a depressive episode. And nobody knows where grief begins and major depression ends, right? Like psychiatrists, the diagnostic framework doesn't do that. But I had clearly crossed over some line because I really wasn't able to get through a day. I get the impression that different people have different lengths of time during which they experience grief, different Mm -hmm. depths of grief. Some people comes in waves and they don't expect the next wave or some people know it's coming in another wave. Grief is a mysterious thing. Mm. The American Psychiatric Association said it after a year, you know, you shouldn't really have grief uh, symptoms. 
And uh, people's response to that was quite intense. <laughs> so they're going back to the you know Jewish idea of you put a headstone after a year, right? Yes, that's right. the idea. You're in mourning for a year, then you do a headstone, yeah. then you can move on. And so you know all these fancy, smart, overeducated people came back to that idea from three thousand years ago. Like that's what the end of grief. And if you're still grieving actively, you have a prolonged grief disorder. A lot of people didn't like that very much because how could you medicalize something so human and fundamental as grief? So what do you think? Is that is that really as helpful as it can be? I mean, what what if you what if you go a year and six months? Right. Are you to really me, sick? What I would say this shows that we don't really understand grief and how it relates to mental health conditions. Because at different mm. periods of time, I would have had a grief response. Then there was like a grief exemption. You couldn't have a major depression if you were grieving, right? Like it was mm. like a tax thing. Like, you you know, you have an exemption, you take <laughs> yeah. it off the top. Like, we don't know how to sort this out. And it's just very humbling. And I think it's important to keep in mind, I'm an overeducated psychiatrist, I'm on the Harvard faculty. What we don't know is a lot. But what we haven't really done is ask real people what they have learned. And this is the book I always wanted to see, Alan. You know, people would say, I've lived with bipolar disorder for 20 years. Here's what made a difference for me. And they use their real names so you don't have to feel like it's anonymous or the doctors made up all the stories. They're like real people. You can actually talk to them. So that's kind of the hope that I had is psychiatry is real. It's a profession, but there's a lot we don't know. But for whatever reason, Alan, we never asked real families, how did you learn to communicate? Yeah, that seems to me to be a real, a really important contribution you've made with this book, because you have both. You have the experts giving you the advantage of their experience and their studies, but you have real people who have worked out these problems on their own. One of the wonderful stories um, of this lived experience was what happened with Catherine, who was overwhelmed. Oh, Catherine McNulty. She invented a NAMI program called Peer to Peer. And it's an educational program where people come and you get information and support and you immediately don't feel alone. And I said, so Catherine, tell me a little bit about how you realized how important peers were. And so she's going to a peer support group. And uh, I think her future husband is running the peer support group. And, uh, you know, that's a nice connection that she made there. And she describes being overwhelmed with mental health symptoms and having young children at home. And she describes to me that her sink is piled very high with dishes. Like she couldn't run her kitchen and manage her illness and be a good mother. She goes to the support group and someone says to her something that I've never heard a psychiatrist or other mental health professional say, right? The answer wasn't more meds. The answer wasn't more psychotherapy. The answer wasn't anything in the professional realm. It was paper plates. That you should give up on running a kitchen until your children are grown. You have enough to go going on, Catherine. Take care of yourself. Take care of your kids. Don't worry about the plates. And she said that was life-changing for her. To a person who'd been there, said, listen, I couldn't run my kitchen either. Paper plates made all the difference. This is the kind of thing I was interested in the book so I wasn't taught about paper plates. I never really got the feeling for what a dog could do for a person. Like, you learn things from real people that you don't get in professional training. And this is kind of the wisdom of lived experience experts that I wanted to capture. I love that, that you brought real people 
to weigh in on what the experts said, and you brought experts in, experts from around the world, to answer the questions of the real people that you get commonly. It's a both-end book. So the idea is, you know, Alan, you learned something having a mother who lived with schizophrenia. Yeah. You learned something about communication, about being a, a sharp observer of reality, right? You know, how it informs your remarkable career, you know, is a whole nother question. But you learned something. And the idea of the book is that the professionals have learned something, the researchers have learned something, but you've learned something too. Hmm. I interviewed a man in Montana who'd lived with voices for 25 years. And I asked him how his experience was. And he's on the best antipsychotic, the one that's FDA approved for reducing voices for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. He's on the best medicine. Like there is no next trick for him. But he's still hearing voices. Every single day. And he said, once I really accepted, then he paused and he looked at me. I mean, really accepted that I was going to hear voices every day the rest of my life. I thought, okay, I don't have to put energy into that. Hmm. And in fact, I'm not the CEO of Google. I'm not this amazing person. But wait a second. I have a best friend. I have a family that loves me. I do meals on wheels delivery in Montana. The people I bring food to love me. Maybe I am a good person. But first, I had to stop fighting the symptom. That was his wisdom. Now, nobody ever said that to me in my psychiatric training, that what you really need to do with work with a person, they would teach me, keep trying new drugs, keep trying to reduce the symptom, Hmm. right? He was like, listen, people have tried all that stuff, and I'm grateful for it. What I really have to do is learn to accept that something I don't want is going to be part of my life. I really resonate with that because acceptance, while it could be thought of as giving in is really a release from unnecessary wasted energy. Right. Exactly what he's saying. If I don't have to fight this, I can actually take in the fact that I have a lot of really good things in my life because I had spent so many years fighting this. So it's just an interesting perspective that I had never seen in a book before. Like a real person, lovely man, lives in Montana, and, you know, he wanted to share his story. And I asked him at the end of the interview, what was this experience like for you? He said, Ken, this was liberating. Mm. To be able to actually share this was liberating. I'd include that quote in the book because, you know, you have uh, word length, right? <laughs> but, you know, I will tell you, yeah, it was one of the nicest moments in the whole process because he was talking about something he'd been battling for two decades and had decided to let go and accept When we come back from our break, I talk with Ken Duckworth about the importance of listening and empathy when we're speaking with people struggling with mental illness. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways it influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, 
or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ken Duckworth. The book we've been discussing is called You Are Not Alone. People said to me one after another, I interviewed 130 people, Alan, from all across America, from the tip of Cape Cod to Hawaii, from Anchorage, Alaska to San Antonio. I interviewed people from all different races, religions, ethnicities. Almost every single one of them said, the idea that my experience could help another person and then I'm going to be in a book as a teacher. My little story has meaning is the most amazing thing to me, that you consider me a kind of expert, Ken. And I'm like, you are a kind of expert. You've lived with this phenomenon in your life for years, and you've learned something about it. What about the experts who are recognized by universities around the world as experts, answering the questions that people commonly posed to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I like experts in the traditional sense. So I, I like lived experience too. So what's interesting about the book is it's the synthesis. It's a both-and book. So some of the most important questions people have asked me, let's say for people with bipolar disorder, do I really have to take these meds forever? Well, that's a really sophisticated question. And you can't just say yes or no. So I went to the king of bipolar disorder for planet Earth. And I said, Andy Nirenberg, you're the man. Uh, you've written 400 papers. You're eight times smarter than I could ever hope to be. How would you answer this question in 500 words or less? Right? And I loved his answer. Uh, I have an addiction problem. Should I get my addiction under control before I get treated for my mental health? Now, I was taught, Alan, back in the day, you can see I have gray hair, that you could only do one at a time. And the modern thinking is you need to work on both at the same mm. time, and you have to work with practitioners who can work with both at the same time. So I asked Dr. Mark Albanese, who's a wonderful man, an addictionologist, and he's like, oh, Ken, I'd love to answer that question for the book. Bill Miller answers the question, how do you talk to a family member who doesn't seem to want help? Then I asked Javier Amador, who invented LEAP, Listen, empathize, agree, partner. How do you talk to somebody who's really, really unable to see, not denial, but unable to see 
that they have an illness process. Tell me a little bit more about LEAP, because that sounds like not only a really useful strategy when you're talking to a family member who needs help and doesn't realize it, it sounds like a useful way to communicate about anything. Yes, listen, empathize, agree, and partner. Yes, so uh, Javier had a brother who had schizophrenia. And he learned this lesson through his experience. So he's a psychologist in New York. And he would say to his brother, Henry, you have schizophrenia, you need to take your meds. And Henry would not to do so. And uh, then he, six weeks would go by, he said, Henry, remember I told you, you are sick, take these meds. Henry doesn't take the meds. He explains all this in a beautiful essay that he wrote, how do you deal with a family member who says, I'm not sick and I don't need help, which happens all the time for people with uh, severe mental health conditions. Then he realized, you know, I was technically Albert Einstein's definition of an insane person. I was doing the same thing. Henry, you are sick. Henry, you need to take your meds and expecting a different outcome. Then I realized that maybe I should completely let go of that and just love Henry and just support Henry, apologize to Henry for telling him what he needed to do. Say, Henry, I'm never going to talk to you about this again. I'm never going to tell you what's wrong with you and that you have to take meds. I'm just here to love you, Henry. And, you know, through that process listening to Henry, empathizing, agreeing, partnering, right? Over time, Henry decides to take his meds. And he does well. Without the pressure of his educated brother telling him what was wrong with him, he became freer to try it himself. Now, let me ask you about the third step in that. Listening. Yeah. Empathizing. Right. And even even trying to understand what the other person is going through. Yes. Then comes agreement. What if you're presented with something it's kind of hard to agree with? Like, for instance, I was lucky when my mother had to be taken to the hospital because one of her organs was failing. Two doctors were coming into the room to examine her, and she turned to me and said, I can't let them examine me. And I said, why? She said, because they're the devil. Hmm. So it's kind of hard to agree with a statement like that. (laughs) I said, you know... I'm not going to disagree with you. Yeah. But I bet if you act as though they're not the devil, they'll be able to examine you successfully. She said, you think so? I said, why don't you try it? You're a natural. (laughs) Did she realize she had Alan Alda as a son? Like, did she recognize how well you had done in life? And do you think that was part of it? Or is it just the fact that you were a loving son? I have no idea. I I think some part of her brain knew there was something wrong with the idea that they were devils. Yes. But she didn't have a way out of that problem. Right, but you gave her one. Yeah, and she took it. But what if I weren't so lucky to, to think of that? What, well, how, how do you, what do you, what if you're presented with something that really, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to kill me? Yeah, so this is the kind of stuff that Javier Amador does in his LEAP seminars. Like he does three-day weekends with people who deal with all these things in more detail. I just wanted people to know about his work in the book Mm. because this is a common problem. When my dad was sick, you could not talk to him because he did not think he was ill. He was manic. He was up all night. He was spending all our money, right? He was not, you could not reason with him. And then when he was well, he was in such denial and had so much shame, you couldn't talk to him. Mm. So for me, I felt kind of boxed out. So I don't know if Bill Miller sitting on my shoulder and Javier Amador on my other shoulder would have helped me. 
all I learned from my relationship with my dad is that even if you can't figure out how to talk about it, you could really love each other. Mm. And I figured that out. Like, that's my life lesson. Even if you don't have a perfect story where you get to agreement on everything. When I moved to Boston for uh, training, I found one psychiatry uh, leader who liked my essay, my essay to become a psychiatrist now. And I said, I'm going to become a psychiatrist because my dad was a wonderful guy with really bad bipolar disorder. And this essay was ignored all across American psychiatry programs. I went to one famous program, and he said, that's a terrible reason to become a psychiatrist. <sighs> and I said, well, you know, it's just my little story. I'm 26 years old. I'm a nobody. And uh, he said, I said to him, what would be a better reason? And I think this famous person had never been asked a question by anybody who was 26 and knew nothing. He paused for a very long time, Al, and then he said, well, maybe if your father was a psychiatrist. So this guy was not thinking about, like, the workforce problem that we have. Like, you can't get a psychiatrist. So that day I thought, maybe I'm going to hang this up. And I went to meet another man, Ned Hallowell, and he said, this is fantastic. You have such a great uh, experience. You'll know things. So I moved to Boston because of him. Mm. That was the moment I needed so desperately for one person to say, I see there's a potential here that maybe you could do a little good. Has there been a change in psychotherapy where it's now more common for the therapist to reveal things about themselves? It's a great question. So I think it's still, there's different schools of thought on that. I think the idea is you reveal things if it's in the service of your patient mm. or if it's in the service of the work. So. You know, I wouldn't start sessions by saying, hi, I'm Ken Duckworth. My dad had bipolar disorder. That's why I became a psychiatrist. Right. right. You'd listen. You'd li or you, you, don't, maybe, you don't want to say you think you've got problems. Yeah, oh, boy, you think you've got problems. <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, but maybe down the road at the right moment, you might say, well, I ran into this a little bit myself. Would you like to hear about my experience in this regard? Yeah. Like, so you're gentle about it. And they say, nah, 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 I'm good. We're going to focus on my problems. Okay, good. So I think... Uh, the related question, Alan, is, is it okay to discuss your own mental health experience or someone you love as part of becoming, you know, a mental health clinician? Like, I was kind of naive, but, you know, it all worked out in the end. And I found the one job in America, being the chief medical officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, where that is celebrated, right? So tell me a little bit about the National Alliance for Mental Illness. On Mental Illness. On, me yeah. on Mental Illness. So NAMI's the largest grassroots mental health group in the country uh, with people with mental health conditions and family members who love them. There are 650 chapters all across America. No matter where you are, there are people running support groups, education groups, doing advocacy because the services are inadequate all across America. So if you go to NAMI.org, you put in your zip code, it'll say, hey, there's a group 13 miles from you. They have Zoom classes on Monday nights for families, for individuals, uh, support groups, and so I'd say it's a great organization that has really done a lot of beautiful work. And so, Alan, I'm very blessed, you know, that my greatest heartache turned into a professional avenue. And uh, the book was an outgrowth of that, too. I was like, I'm like, hey, guys, is it okay if, like, the people tell their own stories? Because all the other doctor books are, no people in this book are, are real or imagined. Mm. Any resemblance to any person is purely fictitious. So I would get progressively more anxious. I'm like... Why don't I use my platform to let ordinary people just tell their story? And they use so, their own names. They've, they've, their real names. And um, and the idea that, you know, so I had, I met a man uh, named Trevor McCauley in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He and his family drove three hours to come there. 
And he has a lovely wife and adorable kids. And he comes up to me and he says, Ken, I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for so long to tell my story. Mm. And his wife comes up to me and she says, I am so proud of Trevor. Look at what he's accomplished. And I wanted my kids to see this. You know, maybe a, a boy eight and a girl four. I wanted them to see him integrate this aspect of his life. So Trevor and I signed books afterwards. And people would say, Trevor, when you did A, B, and C, what did you learn? Trevor, I noticed you went to the YMCA and you started swimming to at least get something going, some momentum in your life. Would that work for you? So Trevor's like giving out his information as a resource. Hmm. And so again, we don't have enough mental health professionals in America. Certainly we're in the midst of a mental health crisis made worse by the pandemic. But we have left off the field all the people who've been living with these things. That's the joy of the book. And I only stopped at 130 because I ran out of time, Alan. And I've had people send me emails, hey, Ken, I want to be in your next book. <laughs> like, like, so it's just so amazing. I had tapped into one reality, which is that people were ready to share. And I don't encourage everybody to go on Channel 5 and tell their story. You have to assess your workplace. You have to assess all those things. But a lot of people are there, actually. Well, you've done a wonderful thing. The book alone is a handbook, a resource, a tremendous aid to anybody who's in it or has somebody close to them who's in it. So I think about you and your family, Alan. Like, if somebody bought that book and gave it to you, um, your mother might not read it at all. But when no one was looking, your dad might read it. One, right? one of us might read it and actually talk to each other. Right. <laughs> Potentially. Because <laughs> yeah. wait a minute, here's all these other people who are living with this same thing. They took this class at NAMI called Family to Family. Like, maybe we should take that class. What do you think? We don't have to bring mom. Mom doesn't have to go. If mom doesn't want us to go, we can still go. We're just learning. We're learning how to communicate. We're learning how to support. And then you each wouldn't be alone within the family in the same way that I was. Well, we talk about communication on this show all the time. Mm. And it's always in a different context. And it's never mm. been in this exact context. Right. So I'm really grateful. And what's interesting mm. is it really applies to all kinds of communication. Yes, it does. So we, at, the end of every, at the end of every show, we... I ask seven quick questions, roughly to do with communication. Yes. Not necessarily about what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So first question is, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood. So I'm just going to go back to this experience with my dad. I wish I'd understood what it was like to be a 17-year-old boy in the 1940s have a psychotic episode, be in a hospital, and not long after, be honorably discharged from the army. I would love to have, you know, just an hour in his mind in the 1940s where everyone around him is a hero and he has to live with a mental health condition. Okay, next. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, my you know, I asked them, would you consider some alternative ways to look at this? No, I know exactly <laughs> what's going on. What I do in those cases is let that conversation go. And I focus on something that we can agree on, uh. that you have a beautiful dog, or that <laughs> it's a nice day in Boston for a change, right? <laughs> so actually, I'm not sure that everyone can be convinced of different uh, yeah. perspectives. 
But I do try to inquire. Right, right. Okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question anyone has ever asked me that I was humbled to uh, answer is I had a man in an emergency room tell me that the FBI was after him. And while I wasn't sure he was delusional, you have to remember that I had evaluated dozens of people who had lost contact with reality. Before the internet, the Boston Globe was delivered to the emergency room. FBI is chasing Bob Smith, the guy I had an interview. So he was right. He was right. Strange so, question because it was real. Right. Had, that, that qualifies. That qualifies. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a moment because I didn't know the answer to the question. And then the answer was presented to me by the Boston Globe. Okay, here's the next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Mm. You know, one of the strategies that I have used for a compulsive talker is say, you know, I'm going to be taking a break from this conversation now. Is there anything you really need me to know in 10 words or less? 10 words or less. Because I'm taking a break. I'm going to take a walk with the dog. I'm going to listen to the latest Alan Alda podcast. I'll see you in an hour or two. (laughs) Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Mm. I like to ask people what they're looking forward to. Hmm. That's non-threatening, but it reveals something. And if the person says nothing, I can't think of anything I'm looking forward to, then that's a conversation in itself, right? This sounds like not only a good conversation, but something you can bill them for. Uh, (laughs) Then I have to tell them, I'm sorry, I don't take your insurance. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, next to last question. (laughs) What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? So I can, I'm a cancer survivor. And the cancer that I had, testicular cancer, was lethal a decade before. And uh, somebody figured how to combine chemotherapies and give me 34 years of life. Mm. 34 years. Wow. Including, among other things, three fabulous kids, the ability to write this book, right? Having all the experiences that I could have. That gives me hope, a lot of hope, because I'm a direct beneficiary of the idea of study things, learn things, advance things. So I deeply believe we can advance in science, and science relates directly to mental health. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? Mm. Well, that's a great question. So the book 1984, written by George Orwell, I go back to that same book, and I know that's unusual for a mental health practitioner. I mean, so people would probably give you mental health books. That's not the book that changed my life. The book that changed my life was George Orwell's 1984. It's been very, very interesting talking with you. Thank you so much for a terrific conversation. Well, thank you for sh- thank you for sharing your experience, too, because, you know, uh, it would be easy to fall into. Alan Alda is an exalted American, right? And, you know, here you and I had the exact same childhood experience. Yeah, right. Right? And that helps you feel less alone. And I'm telling you, every time somebody shares something like that, I think it creates just a little more air, a little more opening the windows. It just helps breathe, helps people breathe a little bit more. So I want to thank you for that, too. Thank you very much, Ken. All the best. You, too. 
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Ken Duckworth is the Chief Medical Officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. The full title of his book is You Are Not Alone, The NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health, with advice from experts and wisdom from real people and families. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is our final episode of Clear and Vivid Season 20, and next week I'll be back with executive producer Graham Chedd to look ahead to Season 21 and to a whole new batch of fascinating guests. We're kicking off the season with a return visit from Dr. Eric Topol. We last talked with him when the world was different a few months before the COVID virus took over all of our lives, while ending the lives of many. Throughout the pandemic, Eric wrote a regular newsletter that became a beacon for people trying to cut through the fog of misunderstanding and misinformation. We asked him back to tell us about the lessons that have been learned and those that are still to be learned. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store.
What will you find? 